0: Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler, and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. One of the really uh, beautiful things about what God is doing here in Alberta is he's brought multiple families and people into this church, men of God who, who are able to open up the word and share with us and encourage us in the word. And so today I've asked Chris Dees if he would come and share the word. So would you welcome Chris as he brings the word today? All right, good morning. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for the invitation. Thank you, church, for allowing me to be here. You know, I was kind of thinking in between, you know, in the intermission between both services, you know, my apologies for for the volunteers in the back who have to listen to me twice. Um, You know, that can be kind of taxing on a Sunday, but at the same time, I was also reminded of uh, the church that I got saved in. Our pastor had this friend who would fill in for him, and he was retired, and he would always come in, and he would be like, he was so happy to be here, and he would thank us for allowing him to be there because he needed the practice, and we needed the preaching. So, you know, maybe there's something there to that part here. I don't know, but nonetheless, um, you know, we'll proceed forward. Um, you know, before we do anything, you know, I just want you to know that, you know, there's no no credit to be given here, No, no credit to be taken. There's no original content. This is just wisdom that has been gleaned over the years from various teachers. And, you know, uh, every Christian, every believer is called to be a lifetime learner. We're all to be students of God's Word, and that's essentially what this is. So anything that you hear today is not mine, and and nor would I want to take credit for it. But if you would, uh, grab your Bible or your device or whatever you have. Um, I noticed that you you noticed that I opened up a laptop up here. Please don't be alarmed. There's not going to be this really in-depth presentation other than the fact that I have this tablet that's kind of old enough to where now I can consider it obsolete. So rather than risk losing my salvation over trying to operate this tablet that does not cooperate, I just brought my, my laptop up here. and this It's good because for me, you know, the whole multi-service thing, I'm still a novice, so there's a good discipline. My tip, my hat, I mean, uh, pastors like Josh and the rest that do multiple services in a day and can manage that time You know, that's really cool. I'm learning how to do that. So first service, we kind of, you know, I could feel myself condensing it down. Guess what, guys? We got all afternoon, so, you know, it'll be it's good, though. It's all good. So anyhow, uh, we're going to look at John chapter 11 today. And if you would, we're going to go through the first... We're going to read the first four verses. I'll open in prayer, and then we'll get started, okay? So John chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha her sister her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are, how unworthy we are, but yet how grateful we can be to to be allowed into your presence today and how you would invite us in. And and, and in this invitation, we can just sit at your feet and be taught by you. And we pray that you would just open up our minds, open up our hearts, that the Holy Spirit may truly give us the, the wisdom, the understanding, the teaching that we need. I pray that you would remove any and all distractions that may try and interrupt what you're doing here. Bind up the enemy on all sides and give us a laser focus on your holy scriptures today that we may know or or that we may learn what we need to learn. Father, change us where we need to be changed. Mature us, grow us call us to repentance. Father, call us to righteousness. Make us who you created us to be. And I pray that today everything that's said and everything that's done would be to bring glory and honor to your great name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So in all of this, um, in John's gospel, and and I'm going to offer you a brief introduction, but not too Not too brief, but not too long at the risk of the front porch being bigger than the house. We don't want to spend a whole lot of time. We want to jump right into this. But, you know, John's gospel is different than the other gospels. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 20 really quick. Just a short little turn over. You'll probably get there faster than I will because I didn't have it bookmarked. But in John chapter 20, verses... And we're actually going to look at verse 30 and 31, okay? John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And essentially what he's saying is everything that Jesus did, there's no possible way we can contain it in a textual volume, but, but what we do have is enough and the reason why it's here is to bring you to life, bring, bring you to belief and bring you to life in His name. Okay? The purpose of John's gospel is he's so unique because you know, in the other three, which are called the synoptics, we basically get a, a biography of Jesus' life, a chronology of His life. Okay? And some include certain details, some exclude. But together, the three of them, without any major discrepancies, tell one story, and that is the life of of Christ. But John, on the other hand, his gospel is, is some will call it a more spiritual gospel. It's, it's, it's different. 40% of his gospel focuses on the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, where we are privy to sit. We almost have like an insider scoop. Because in that, Jesus is teaching very direct, very private, very intimately with his disciples, to where in the other gospels during that week, they tend to focus on the things he did in public the teaching of the masses, his disputes with the religious elite. you know th- Those other gospels take on a different perspective. It's like four people that have the, the, the viewpoint of the same story, but they all have a different take on it. But together what we have is the story of Christ. Okay, And, and, and John's gospel is also considered a book of signs or a sign book because in there he focuses on the miracles of Christ, but in, more importantly he focuses on the I Am Statements. And in that gospel we find, or in this gospel, what we find are seven particular statements. Seven particular statements where Jesus said, I am. Now when He would say, I am, immediately His Jewish audience would go back in time to everything they had learned about God. And they would remember the story with Moses. They would remember, some of this may be familiar to you, but they would remember when God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush and Moses is like, you want me to go talk to who? The most powerful man in the world, do you know who I am? I can't even speak clearly. And and even if I do this, what am I going to tell them? Who sent me? And that's when God clearly said, I am sent you. That's all you got to tell them, I am. And I know some of you are are looking up at this screen and you see that, you know, finely written English up there that all makes sense to us. But what that is is just a, 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 a statement of what we are discussing today. Okay, that's Latin for you. That is the last of what is considered the five solas, okay? And and there's a whole lot to talk about there, and and we don't have time for that today. Besides, I don't really want to get into any controversy, so we're just going to stick to the terms of agreement that we have already here. But nonetheless, essentially we have the five solas of the Christian faith, which are, are essentially the five solas of salvation, to where we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, And this, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, okay? And that is what we are focused on today is the glory of God alone. But when Jesus would say, I am, I am the light of the world, I am the bread that came down from heaven, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, Okay. I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine, and today when He says, I am the resurrection and the life, He was leaving no doubt as to who He claimed to be, and that's what got Him in trouble okay because if if how many of you like cs lewis anybody ever read any cs lewis you know you probably watched the, the little bit of the narnia movies okay so anyways cs lewis is cleverly articulate as he was he would put it this way he would say jesus leaves us three options he would say either a he's a liar b he's nuts or three he's god Because he would say, essentially, Jesus, if you cannot sit there with with intelligent thought and say that Jesus is a good moral teacher and not say that He is also God, because He said He was God. He clearly said it. As a matter of fact, to set the backdrop to the story today in chapter 10, He had to get out of Jerusalem because the religious elite there were going to stone Him for blasphemy. They knew what He was saying. When he uttered in the Greek, me" was saying, I am, they knew immediately this guy's claiming to be God. There is only one God. We are a theocracy. This does not jive with what we believe, what we teach. He's got to go. Okay? So Lewis, on the other hand, would say, look, Jesus left no room. So either A, he's not a good moral teacher. He's lying to you. He's not really God. He's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Or B, he's crazy to where he really thinks he's God, but he's not. Or see, he actually is God. He's telling you the truth, and he wants you to believe. There is no middle ground. There's no rail, no fence to sit on here. And we're going to find in today's story, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is arguably the climax of the miracles that he performed in his earthly ministry here, as he confronts man's greatest enemy, death the thing that people are afraid of, the thing that is so, leaves so much uncertainty, the thing that keeps us up at night or, or drives fear within our hearts is that Jesus successfully confronted the one, okay, who is uh, confronted the one who is threatening, who is attacking, who introduced sin into this world which led to the death now that He will encounter, confront, okay, and overcome. So, with all of that, I want to ask you a question and then we'll revisit the question over and over again as often as we can remember, okay? But it's a question that all of us have to ponder. Whether you are a believer, whether you are not a believer, whether you are a young Christian, a a seasoned Christian, no matter who you are, we all... and whether we've put it in these terms or not is irrelevant. You all, we all encounter this question and have to grapple with it in our lives consistently because life is, I mean, we all, sometimes we're at the crest, sometimes we're at the trough, sometimes we're at the mountaintop, sometimes we're in the valley. Life is a continuous up and down, okay? We all experience these things. And what we have to stop and grapple with is what do you do when God doesn't do what you think He should do? when you think He should do it? How do you respond? What do you do when God does not bend to your prayers? Okay, How do you respond when when God is not serving your agenda? What do you do when, when God doesn't do what you think He should do when you think He should do it? Because today we're going to encounter that very scenario where Jesus was called upon to do something and He didn't do it. He did it His way, His time, and for His purpose. And it, it really conflicted with those who had called Him out because what we have to stop and consider at this point is, is does my prayer life focus on the will of God or does my prayer life focus on the will of me? Am I truly praying for God's glory alone or am I truly playing, praying for what God can do for me? Because that's a, that's a game changer. Because when we begin to take the focus off of ourselves and we focus on the fact that there is a sovereign God who is reigning over the cosmos and because He is sovereign, there is not one molecule that operates outside of His sovereignty, of His divine ordinance over everything He has spoken into existence. Once we adopt that persuasion in our lives, we are immediately transformed in the way that we think. And we look at things through a lens of, okay, God, you got this. Doesn't matter. It can be the greatest challenge I've ever faced. It could be, and no matter what that looks like, guys, no matter how that feels to you, because some of us, I mean, no matter where you are for the unbeliever, it's the fact that we need to be called out of our sin and, and the death that we live and, and called into the life and the resurrection. That is Jesus. Or maybe you are just sitting there as a believer who's struggling because you have something in your life that has died. Maybe you feel like your faith has died. Maybe you feel like your trust in God has died. Maybe your marriage has died. You have a relationship that is strained, and it feels like it can't be resurrected. I don't know. You fill in that blank and allow God to bring that out to you. Look with me in John chapter 11. Open up your Bibles again, please. Okay, So we've already read that, that somebody was ill. His name was Lazarus. He is of Bethany. Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem, not that far. Okay, And then in verse 3, we see where the sisters of Lazarus put out a distress call. Verse 3, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. In other words, then we have an establishment at the beginning of this narrative that there is a deeper relationship between Jesus and the siblings of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus than, than just a typical scene where people are bringing their sick ones to Jesus to heal them in the, the center of town or wherever He might be at that time. Okay, There is a something here. There is a, a relationship that if we look back through, the, through the, the, the account of His life, we find that no, Jesus would stay at their house. We have a story, there's the the story of Jesus where He is at their house where they are sitting around and they have eaten a meal together and the the men are there gathered, the disciples are there in the living room and they're just like hanging out and Jesus is teaching them and and Martha gets like upset with Mary because Martha's doing what every good hostess would do. Okay, she's fed her guests, she's cleaning up, she's getting everything put back in order. Okay, and Mary's done the opposite. Mary's in there hanging out with the guys, which, you know, was not really something that ladies did back then. She's in there hanging with the guys, so much so that she is moved by Jesus and drawn to Him to where it says that she's weeping at His feet and wiping his, uh, uh, washing His feet with her tears and her hair. Okay, so th- these people knew Him. And it says that Jesus knew them. So this is not just some fly-by-night request. This is not just some, I'm going to cast this out there and see if he'll take my bait. No, they're calling out to him as a loved one. And watch what happens. Immediately, this is how Jesus responds in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, this situation, it's not that death doesn't have a part to play. It just means that death doesn't have the final word. It's not that death is not going to be something that is involved here. What it means is that, no, they knew that Jesus could help them. They seen Him heal. The blind. They'd seen him cure those with diseases. They'd seen him touch lepers and their skin immediately clear up. They knew what he was capable of. I want you to kind of put yourself, take yourself back and and put yourself in the shoes of his disciples that are sitting here because they sent a distress call that said that Lazarus was sick. Jesus tells them this is not going to end in death. And they're like, wait a minute, death? They just need you to go fix him. You know, he's ill, he's in bed, he can't get up, he needs some help, his fever won't break, whatever the case may be. And Jesus is like, Look, the death is not going to lead, uh, this illness is not going to end in death because God's going to get glory through it because of what's going to happen. And that's how we can approach these situations. No matter what case or, or whatever circumstance you are in in your life, we remember, we understand, we believe that hey, God's got it under control because He's going to get glory from it. And if God is glorified in my situation, I know that it's the best possible outcome. That there is no other outcome, no matter how I conjure up in my mind, there's nothing better than if God is getting glory from that situation, then it's the best possible thing for me. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate in this situation. And it says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus gets word and stops. He doesn't say, go pack your stuff. He doesn't say, fix us some food for for the journey. He doesn't say, let's tie up some loose ends so we can get on up there. we got to hurry. Lazarus is sick. Let's just beat a trail. What does it say? He hung out. He delayed. How do we handle God's delays? How do we process God's delays? How do we do, what do we do when Jesus waits? When Jesus waits, why? Because He knows how it's going to turn out. Like He's got a plan involved and He's working all of these parts and they're coming together. He knows what's going to happen. They don't. Okay. Same thing for us today, right now. God's already got it under control. We're the ones dealing with the uncertainty. We're the ones dealing with the the, the unknown, should I say. We're the ones struggling with, okay, do I take this step or do I make this turn? What do I do? Jesus knows. God knows. He's got it. But look at verse 7. Then after this, He said, To the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now we've already set the scene in chapter 10 that he got run out of Jerusalem. He had to leave. They were going to stone him. So now he says we're going back. Now immediately what goes through your mind as a disciple where you just left Jerusalem where Jesus was going to get stoned to death and now he says we're going back. You realize there's not really a time break between chapter 11 and chapter 10. Like man put chapter and verse and, and, and headings and subtitles and all that stuff in here. No, 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 no. This is one, con- one fluid story. Jesus leaves and as soon as he leaves, he, hangs, he gets word that Lazarus is sick. He hangs out a couple of days. So there's not even been much time at all for the dust to settle between when they beat a trail out of there the first time. And now all of a sudden Jesus says that we're going back. Immediately in my mind, if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute, we've walked with you for like three years. We remember a time when there was a centurion that sent for you and said his servant was really sick and needed you to come to his house to heal him, and you healed him from a distance. So that when the centurion returned, he got word, and he did the math in his head, and he's like, wow, as soon as Jesus said he was healed, at that moment he was healed. So his disciples know that we really don't have to go back to Jerusalem in order to heal Lazarus. That's not necessary here. But it is necessary because Jesus said he was going to do it. So I mean, there's things conflict with us when we try to really compute what's going on. But you know, at the same time, it's like, okay, does Jesus know what he's doing? Do these disciples still have a little bit of doubt? Is their faith still kind of fragile? Let's see. So in verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, they said, teacher, our leader, the one that we trust, the one that we think you know, is the one capable of showing us what we need to know in life. He says, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. He's like, these guys are still angry. They probably still got a rock in their pocket in case they see you. He said, and are you going there again? They're like, what are you doing? We don't understand this. This this is not making sense to me. They feel like your life is going to be at risk. But at the same time, Jesus understands the foreordination of his life. He knows that God has set for him a will to perform. And he also made it very clear, nobody takes my life from me. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. Jesus isn't concerned. And they're about to learn what that means. Okay, It's not just as it was the fullness of time when he was born. It is not the fullness of time for him to exit. But look at verse 9. How many of us love it when you ask a question and instead you get a riddle? Like you want to know something and instead you either get a trail of more questions or you get something that's more complexing than the fact that you didn't understand to begin with. And now you just feel like you're even more on a spiral of like confusion. Okay, this this is how I see this answer here. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I mean, immediately my like, you know, postmodern 20th century mind is like, what are you talking about? Are we going to travel at night? Are we going to travel at day? I mean, what are you talking about? But Jesus is clearly trying to teach them. once we really stop and try to understand this in its context, he's like, look, the night of my ministry has not come. The night of my soul is not here. The day of my ministry is still burning. I still have the Father's will to do, and it will be daytime until my Father's will is completed. My day is not finished. Okay? So after saying that in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And this confuses them. And we find throughout Scripture there are different places where being asleep and being dead are kind of exchanged. Okay? They're kind of you know, uh, uh, mutual terms, and so to speak. But here He's not talking about that. Now His disciples are like any other person. Okay, if He's sick, He needs to sleep. His body needs to recuperate. It's good for Him to sleep, you know, obviously. But I want you to pay attention to what happens because His disciples, this is what they said. They said in verse 12, Lord, if He has fallen asleep, He will recover. Now, verse 13, John says, Now Jesus had spoken of His death, but they thought that He meant taking a rest in sleep. And then verse 14 begins, Then Jesus told them plainly. Every time I read that, I'm like, God, could you tell me some stuff plainly? You know? It's like, would you please make it clear to me? Because I feel the the more I think I know, the actually the less intelligent I feel. And the more decisions I need to make, the more uh, inept I feel to make those decisions. I'm like, could you tell me plainly? Well, that, that'd be really cool if you would do that. You know, but at the same time, it feels like, no, nah, we're going to decipher code all day and try to determine if what we're doing is really right or wrong. And these disciples were at a place to where they were confused. So he tells them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. I want you to there again, take a deep breath and put yourself in his disciples' position right now. They know Jesus and Lazarus are buddies. They know that he's more than a family friend. There's a deep love connection there. They have broken bread at the same table. They have sat together. They know each other. And he was called in time to go and heal his sick friend. And now they knew that Jesus, like, okay, Jesus, it's been two days. You were just told what? Well, what are we doing? I can imagine they're talking about what do you think he's doing? You know what, what's going on here? I can imagine there's like some. Some crosstalk going on, like, what do you think is going on? Why wouldn't he want to heal him? He heals all these other people that we've never even met before, but these are our friends. What's going on? And then all of a sudden Jesus says he's asleep. And they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, obviously you're waiting around because you know that he's sleeping or maybe you're helping him sleep. Maybe you are healing him from a distance. What's going on? And then Jesus speaks to him plainly, dude's dead. My friend is dead. Your friend is dead. Immediately they're thinking, you let him die? Why? Where's their mind at? Maybe their mind went all the way back to where, you, know, you remember Jesus walking into the, the house of Jairus and He walks up to the daughter's bedroom and puts His hand on her and says, Damsel arise, and it says she gets up out of the bed. Or as, as He's heading into the city of Nain and there's a widow following a funeral percussion where her only son is dead. And He walks by the casket and touches it and it says, The guy, sit up. Maybe they're thinking, okay, well, you've got this miracle going on now. You're going to, do a, you know, you're going to take it up another notch, as Emeril Lagasse used to say, okay? You're going to do something different. But Jesus says, no, for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there, that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And everything I've said is speculative at best. That is just me processing what's in front of me. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm just telling you how... I would think, and then Jesus comes out with these two words that put us in a tailspin. He says, "I'm glad." Now you stop for a minute and you think about this for a second. Okay, what do we do when you when your loved one dies and Jesus says, "I'm glad"? What do you do when you get a diagnosis that is dark and grim and Jesus says, "I'm glad"? What do you do when your marriage falls apart and Jesus says, "I'm glad"? What do you do when you, when you lose your job and, and Jesus says, I'm glad? What do you do when, when life pulls a rug out from under you, you fall flat on your back, gasping for air, and Jesus looks down and says, I'm glad? What do you do? How do you process that? What do you do when God doesn't do what you think He should do when you think He should do it? Why would God say that? How could God say, God, how could you possibly be glad? This is the worst time of my life and you're glad. And He tells us because He's going to get glory from it. And that sounds like a a far off, it sounds like a pious term. Oh, God's going to get glory out of my situation. But we have to stop and understand that God is God. And if if my situation glorifies Him, then I understand that my situation is at its best possible place. That's the easiest way that I can put it. Because He has a plan to use my situation. He has a plan to use your situation or situations. Your life as a whole, God, has a plan to use that to exalt His Son. That's what this text is teaching us. And it's because we also remember, like the Apostle Paul said, His grace is sufficient because His strength is made perfect in weakness. And I can't imagine anyone weaker than a dead person. Okay? The only thing weaker than a dead person, it seems to me, is a person that's, was calling for help and didn't get it. Nonetheless, what? So let me let you in on something. Tough pill to swallow, but it's something that I've learned and something that, I've, that I believe wholeheartedly. Is that God, right now, as He is, if He never gave you another thing that you prayed for, You can beg, you can plead, you can bargain, you can rationalize, you can come up to Him with 12 good reasons out of sacred Scripture as to why this is a good idea or why it's not a bad idea or whatever the case may be. No sin around. If God never gave you another thing that you prayed for, He's still good. He's still just, He's still gracious, still merciful, still worthy. He's still holy, holy, holy. Holy, He's still the great I Am that we read in John's Gospel, who's proven Himself time and time again. God saying no to you does not diminish His impeccable, uh, immutable character in the smallest degree. That's hard to, to, to accept, but it's true. Because God knows what's best, and God does what's best, and He's calling us now to trust Him. Young people, I can speak directly to you. Your life is ahead of you, and you're going to go down, and you're going to go up. And sometimes those downs seem like they're ten times longer than those ups. Trust Him now, and you'll be ten steps ahead of the rest of us who are still struggling with it today. Think about it this way. We we pray to God, and we have this idea. Garth Brooks made it famous, right? If God doesn't say yes, He didn't answer your prayer. Do You know, there's other answers besides yes, right? We use them all the time. Sometimes God says no. We don't like no. Matter of fact, when we're kids and we hear no, we usually pitch a fit, right? No, you pitch a fit as a grown-up when you hear no. Matter of fact, you can't even tell yourself no most of the time. That's the hardest person you'll ever learn to tell no is yourself. Sometimes God says wait. It's not time. Either way, God answers your prayers. Either way, God gives you an answer. Either He says, yes, you can, or yes, I will, no, or He says it's not time. But either way, what we're finding out here, what sometimes feels like a no, is really a very timely wait. It's a yes in disguise. Because we're impatient, because we feel desperate, because this situation has gotten us to a place to where we don't know if we're ever going to recover. And God says, I want you to feel like you can never recover so that you can recognize the fact that I am the only hope that you have. Let's pick back up. So Thomas, oh Thomas, everyone, Thomas has gotten a bad rap. And I hate it for him because I think Thomas is one of the more admirable disciples. But he got a bad rap. He's called a doubter. Who wants to hear wants to be called the doubter? We don't mind being the skeptic, okay? We don't mind being the one who wants evidence, but we don't want to be a doubter. But he's called the doubter because of his upper room experience and said, I need to see it. I need to touch them. I need to feel this out. I don't know what's going on here. But look at his response. Thomas says. He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas is like, look, apparently Jesus is off his rocker. He's going right back into the firing squad. But you know what? Let's go. Now, I don't know if there's some sarcasm there because I can appreciate some good sarcasm, okay? Maybe there is. We're not privileged to know exactly what he was doing and what his facial expressions were. And if he stomped his foot or if he kicked some dust, I don't know. But all I can tell you is is that Thomas had a committed, he had a resolve that he was going to stick with Jesus no matter what. He said, you know what, Jesus, you haven't led me wrong yet. You know what, Jesus, I've seen you do things that I have never seen before. I've seen you walk out of situations that nobody should have walked out of. We just did it. If you're determined to go back, then if death is is, is is, is, is where you're leading us to, then I'm going to stick with you. I trust you. That's what I read out of there. I trust you. And that's difficult. That's that's so difficult for us. Because they're concerned that another trip of Jerusalem is going to result in his death, and possibly theirs. Now, verse 17. "When When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. A quick little underscore there. I don't know how familiar you are with like, rabbinic teaching of that day, but they taught that the soul would linger around the body for three days. I don't know if it was like hovering or laying beside or kicked in the recliner. I don't know what the soul was doing, but it would hang around the body for just a few days, and then on day four, it would depart. So Jesus' time, his, his timing is exactly the way that He planned for it to be so that at this point, there is no confusion. If Lazarus comes back to life, Or let me say, when Lazarus comes back to life, there's no taking a different approach. He's completely dead. He's like unmistakably dead. It's not some type of supernatural unsolved mystery. No, if he comes out, this is all on Jesus. Okay, that's what he's trying to do there. Four days, he is capital D E A D. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. You notice the role reversal. I want you to pay close attention to the the contrasting role reversal here. Before, Martha was the one that was preoccupied and didn't make time for Jesus. Now, Mary, the one who was just overwhelmed by the presence of God and didn't want to leave Him, is the one staying in the house. And Martha's the one that comes out to meet Him first. Martha says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Now, we're not privileged, there again, to the inflection of her voice. We don't really know if she was like, how she meant to say that or what she's actually saying. But as we look at the rest of her quote, I tend to believe that what we find here is some some faith that is struggling and trying to break through some pain and sorrow and disappointment. Do you realize that God can handle our disappointment? I think He's big enough to handle that, to shoulder that. Okay, I've heard it said plenty of times that often our disappointment is God's appointment. He has something to do there. But look at what she says. But even now, she believes that the presence of Jesus changes things. And she says, now you're here. You didn't get here when I wanted you to. You didn't come when I asked you to. You didn't do what I thought you would do. You didn't respond appropriately, but you're here now. But you're here. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She said, I, don't, I know you can do it. I believe you. Thank you. And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. Now we're going to find out how much she believes. Because she says, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's like, you know what? She thinks Jesus is coming just to, to soothe everyone. He's coming to, to preach one of those consoling messages that's going to lay everybody at peace because He's in a better place and everything's going to be okay and remember His, his life with you and carry on His legacy and you know all those things. I mean, you got to think about it. Jesus wasn't just late to Lazarus. He missed the funeral. He missed everything. And she says, but you're here. So she doesn't know what He's going to do, but she doesn't think He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. She's not sure what's going to happen but she knows that Jesus is going to do something so she's trusting in the sense that that something is enough. In verse 25 Jesus says to her very plainly, I am. He reminds her God's here. God is here. I am. The resurrection and the life. He's not saying I'm an authority on resurrection and life. He's not saying I can teach you about it. I can prophesy. I can speculate. I can No, He is saying I am the very embodiment of what it means to be resurrected and to have life. It, it, it be, I am the genesis of it. He says everything begins with me. He says, there's no life apart from me. And that's what, for the unbeliever, there is no life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is making very plain for us. It's only by our union with Him that we can experience resurrection and experience true life. And that's why we believe by Christ alone is salvation found. Not Christ plus one, not Christ plus anything. It's Christ alone. As a matter of fact, I like the way Jonathan Edwards would put it. He would say that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. It's all God, 100%. He says, in verse, continuing verse 25, that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, death has a master. And His name is Jesus. He says, do you believe this? That's a question to us. What do you believe? What do you believe? I mean, that's something that if you don't grapple with, you're just just deceiving yourself. What do you believe? Because Dr. R.C. Sproul would put it this way. He would say the true challenge, and I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting this, so just bear with me. But he would say, believing in God is easy. You know, because the devils believe and they tremble. Believing in God is easy. It's believing God that is the true test of the Christian life. Because what you believe is, determines how you live. The decisions you make, the words that we say, the life that we live is a derivative of what we truly believe. And that's why we always hear actions speak louder than words, right? Or that you know, the, some of the sermons don't use words, stuff like that. You know, in other words, what all that means, whether you agree with it or not, what all that means is that your life is a true test of who you are. Your life is a true example of what you actually believe. In verse 27, Martha says, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Her, her confession mirrors what they've heard Peter say. When his confession was that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, you know, you were Peter, and, I, and, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In other words, we, we see that as a theme that's reoccurring. Well, I want you to look at verse 28 as we continue. But she said this, and she went and called her sister. She's like, look, Mary needs to hear this. Mary's, got, uh, Mary's struggling right now. Mary believed in you in a different way. She needs some help. Saying in private, she went up to Mary. She didn't holler from the, she didn't do it the old, you know, South Alabama way where you yell from three, acre, three acres away and want somebody to hurry up and run to you. you no, know, she went up to him privately. She said, Hey, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep, to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet. That's a familiar place for her. That should be our familiar place with God. The only response that we should have when we encounter Christ is the ground. She fell at the same feet that she wept over, that she washed with her tears and wiped with her hair. Those same feet brought her to that place of prostration as she said, I'm done. I'm at my end. This has got me. I believed in you and you didn't show up. I trusted in you and it seems like you let me down. I thought that you would do this differently. I don't know what to think anymore. I mean, you can see the honesty in just her body language as she sees Jesus and immediately hits the ground, immediately eye level with his feet. And look at what she says. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. She says right now, Jesus, you failed me. God can handle our honesty. Sometimes, with all due respect, it feels like God has failed us. Sometimes it feels like we can't comprehend any possible reason why this should not have worked out, and yet, God, you didn't do it. If you'd have been here, my marriage wouldn't have fallen apart. If you'd have been here, my my mother, my child wouldn't have died. God, if you would have been here, my company wouldn't have went bankrupt. God, if you would have been here... My cancer would be in remission. I mean, the list goes on and on. God, if you would have been here. And God says, I never left. Just life does that to us. It brings out. It squeezes what's inside of us to where it comes out. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Where did you lay him? Whatever it takes, whatever's in you, whatever you have filled that blank in with today, your deepest struggle, your, the, the place of your, of your strongest pain, where you, where you have sorrow, where you weep, where you groan inside of you wanting God to do something, whatever that looks like, this tells us right here, take that to Jesus. That's an invitation. Take it to Him. Give it to Him. He's telling us right now, it's not too big, it's not too powerful, it can't overcome. I've got the final word, I know exactly what I'm doing, I'm always right on time. I've heard it said before, they always, you know, God is like a last hour God. No, He's more like a last second God. I mean, at the moment you think everything is over with and there's no possible hope, that's when God shows up. And God is the only one who can resurrect a dead sinner. God's the only one that can resurrect a dead relationship or a dead situation. Jesus is the only one that can come into these situations and truly change them so that it is for our good and joy and for the glory of God alone. That's what Christ does. That's what Jesus does. He says, where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. And then look at verse 35. It says, Jesus wept. Like I said earlier, one of the most pregnant verses in all of Scripture, just giving birth to this idea of Jesus feeling my pain, experiencing, connecting with me so intimately as to when, just like Paul says in Romans, weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. Or as we read earlier, Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief... The Bible says that we don't have a Savior. We don't have a high priest who can't relate to us. We have one who has come here and walked with us, breathed in our dust, touched our infirmities, experienced our pain, identified with us in the deepest, most intimate ways. That's what we see in verse 35. Jesus, there wasn't like one glistening tear out of the movies that just ran down His cheek. No, He wept. There's a difference. If you've ever wept, you know there's a difference between crying and weeping. Weeping leaves you just like you've done a hundred sit-ups. Okay, Weeping is just like something that wrenches the inside of you. It almost wrings you out. You know, you ask yourself in these moments, you know, well, what do I do when God doesn't do what I think He should do? When I think he should... What do I do when God chooses, rather than and then bending to my prayer, He chooses to use my tears to wash my soul? What do I do? What do I do when God is cleansing me with my own tears? Because that's what we see in these kinds of situations. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not open the eye? he who not opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? They're like, look, he healed strangers. Why wouldn't he heal his good friend? He did this for so many people, and the one person you would think it was a guarantee didn't do it. And it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Always kind of snicker just a little bit in the middle of this serious, dramatic story because if any of you are familiar with the old King James Version, it says right there that he stinketh. You know, and you think about it at this point. This, this guy is beyond just a dead body, okay? He's decaying. He stinketh. He's, he's, he's starting to rot, okay? So she's like, wait a minute, Jesus. We, we called you here. You didn't make it in time. We get it. You don't need to go in there. Like, he's a dead body. He's ritually unclean. You don't need to go in there. And Jesus says, no, he sticks to his guns, And Jesus responds in verse 40. He says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus, like, look, I've already told you one time, didn't I tell you that if you believed? And I can kind of feel this situation because if you remember that father that had a son that was possessed by demon. Okay? And 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 Jesus is like telling him, Look, you know, I can do this, I can help you. If you believe, I can, do you believe it? And he's like, yes, Lord, I believe, but I need you to help me with my unbelief. He's brutally honest with God. He's like, look, I, I, I believe you can do it, but I don't believe you can do it. You know, I, I don't know if you will. I don't know if you want to. I, I don't understand all of this. I just know this is the tall order to fill. And you've done it for other people, but I don't know if you can do it for me. And I think our lives, we enter into these situations sometimes, and we feel the same way. God, you helped them, but I don't know if you can help me. God, you cured them. I don't know if you can cure me. God, you, you, you fixed that situation, but mine's, mine's different. It's me. And at the same time, it also reminds me is that, you know, the faithfulness of God is not contingent upon me or contingent upon you or anyone else or outside circumstances. It's only contingent upon Him and His holy character. And God does what God wants to do, and He does everything in the right way at the right time. Didn't I tell you that? So verse 41, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that, they have, that you have heard me. Obviously, Jesus had been praying already about this. He's like, God, I'm getting ready to go do something really over the top. This is on you, Father. He said, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So in other words, you think about Jesus, you think about him and, and how he proclaims his voice forward. It, it, to me, immediately, takes me back. Let there be light. And immediately there was light. Or even just a, you know, a little bit back in the, in the chronology of, of his life here, what we see is that Jesus stands up in the middle of a storm where they're all like hanging on for dear life, trying not to go overboard. The boat could capsize at any time and Jesus stands up. Peace be still. And immediately the waters slick as glass. That story always intrigued me because the the gospel writers there, they tell us how scared they were of the weather. Like at that point, they were like, not only were they afraid for their life and well-being, but they were also perplexed how Jesus could take a nap. And then at the same time, as soon as Jesus stands up and and casts out that storm and everything goes completely calm and serene, it says that now they're afraid of Him. They were stricken with fear. They're like, whoa, we thought that storm was dangerous. He just kicked the storm out. This is the same Jesus. Jesus. This is the same voice and I want you to stop and think about it because Jesus proclaims, he yells into this tomb and immediately as his voice echoes inside of that tomb it enters the ears of Lazarus and his dead rotten corpse begins to teem with life. The synapses in his brain begin to fire, his heart begins to beat, blood surges through his body and immediately, immediately Lazarus is made whole. Immediately he no longer stinketh. Okay, He's alive. That's the power of God's divine decrees. You see, God doesn't need time to do anything. Sometimes He takes His time to do something. Sometimes it's a gradual growth. But when God calls an unrepentant person to salvation, it's immediate. It is absolutely immediate. And as you can see here, it was 0% Lazarus. 100% 100% God, everything happens when God says to happen. God's voice calls us that are spiritu- when we are spiritually dead to life. And Lazarus responded to the call of God in the only way possible. Lazarus responded because the resurrection and the life called him by name and his options were reduced to one, come out. And He responded by coming to Him exactly as He was. The same thing for us. We come to Him exactly as we are. Smelling of death, wrapped in claws of sin, we come out of the tomb of this life and we respond to the call of God and He welcomes us. Because those who God chooses, God welcomes Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the way that is written, the way that is arranged in its original Greek form, it essentially means that when I was at my absolute worst, God did His absolute best. When I was dead in the middle of my sin, not, not when I was at church singing with the praise band, no, when my mouth was spewing blasphemies. When my mouth was taking His name in vain, it says His Son died for me. When my life was an absolute contradiction and an utter abomination to the Word of God, it says that His Son died for me. When I stunk of death and was wrapped in sin, it says His Son died for me. And that's the proclamation that that is here for us today. God is ready to give us our best at His time for His purpose and His glory alone. And you notice it said there that they had to let Him go. He said, Unwrap Him. In other words, it reminds me of when Jesus said, If the Son makes you free, you really are free. Lazarus didn't walk around in grave claws anymore. He was a new man, changed man. He was alive. I like what Leonard Ravenhill used to say. He would say that Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men alive. And that's what we just have an example of here. Let's close out with 45 and 46. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Consider your response today. How are you going to respond to the call of God in your life? Whatever that situation is, however that looks for you, I don't know what you're going through, but I'm willing to wager that you're going through something. And let me let you in on another secret. If you're not, then get ready because it's coming. We've all experienced that. We know how this is going to come. But let me also say this. Nothing's beyond repair. No situation is too far gone to where God can't intervene and radically change things beyond your wildest imagination. When Paul said to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think, this is the God that we're talking about. This is the scenario that fits Him best. I want to close out and share with you a little bit from this book called The Valley of Vision. It's a Puritan prayer book. And it's got such a, a beautiful eloquence to it. Obviously, it's in the old King James Version, uh, old English version. So, but, but nonetheless, the way God speaks, He can speak to you. My wife and I can, be, can, can tell you that from our own example. We've been through that where a marriage looks dead and a situation looks like it's, it's done, it's, it's without hope. And then all of a sudden there's that little but God and everything changes. Now, That doesn't mean that death and it doesn't mean that sin are not going to pursue you. It doesn't mean that the enemy leaves you alone. As a matter of fact, you get a bigger bullseye for your consolation prize. Okay, you get a greater target, more challenges. But God's faithfulness prevails. God's faithfulness prevails and He will get glory from your life when your life is completely and utterly surrendered to Him and to Him alone. Let me read this to you. It's called The Valley of Vision. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way up is down, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the entire um, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all, and that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from in deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley let's pray together Holy Father today as we have been privileged to sit in the the presence of our Father I can't but help but, but say thank you that in Christ because of Jesus we now have this incomparable privilege to call you Father and I pray that your word would not return to you void but that You would bless the reading and the hearing, the teaching and the receiving of Your Holy Word. Father, do in our hearts and our lives what only You as Almighty God can do. And I pray that You would help us to grow in faith and trust and to believe that no matter what, You're going to get glory from whatever we encounter. Thank You, God, for who You are, for Your mercy, For your grace, for your love, your patience, your provision, for all good things. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray, and for his sake, amen. Thank you for listening to the Preaching Podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.